As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, everyone. We are back. I know it's been a little bit of a hiatus for the Resch brothers, uh, about three weeks since episode one with ESPN's Mark Spears. We had a blast with Mark, but we are back. You're looking at, uh, if you're watching us on YouTube, our good friend Josh Sens, Golf Magazine, been writing for years. He is our guest today. We're going to talk a lot of things, obviously, PGA Championship Week here in the Bay Area at Harding Park. I'm in San Francisco. You see my background. That is 16 at Harding. Scott, he is in Park City. Episode two of From the Tips begins right now, and it is sponsored by, yes, we are sponsored this week by a company I'm working for a little bit. It's called Remask. It's the best mask company out there. If you want to be safe, check these masks out, www.remask.com. That's R-E-M-A-S-Q-U-E. Made with bamboo, made in the USA, adjustable. They've got ear straps. They've got a flexible nose bridge. They're customizable for companies. So if you want to check this company out, you can even use my code, get 15% off, Colin15 at remask.com. Here we go. From the tips, episode two. Josh, welcome to the show, man. Man, from Mark Spears to me, you guys are scraping the barrel quickly, I see. <laughs> hey, if the PGA Championship wasn't happening this week, I wouldn't have called. You know I'd be totally irrelevant. No, I only wish I had a product to shamelessly plug as well, but I don't. I'm ju- it's just me. That's all I'm selling here. Well, you know, let, let's start with the PGA. Um, we've all played Harding numerous times. I've probably played it. I don't know if I've played it more than you, Josh, but I'm probably going on at least 50 times. Scott's probably played it 10. You're probably close. Uh, the venue this week looks like the weather is going to be, you know, typical San Francisco in the summer, but it should be pretty good. Um, what do you see? It's it's not going to have, well, we might have these sort of sunsets. Uh late into the night there, but what do you foresee happening this week? Because it's, it's a tournament and it's a major unlike any we've ever seen. Well, first I'll say, you know, I've, I've been playing the course since the late 1980s when I first moved out to the Bay area. So it's been a little more than 30 years. And that, that was in the previous iteration prior to the renovation. Um, I walked it last week and played it about three and a half weeks ago as they were trying to get the course into tournament shape. They're narrowing down the fairways. They're growing out the rough. They're trying to firm it up as much as they can. I mean, they're doing what they they do to try to defend a course against the modern game. That's all they have at a course like Harding. You can only stretch the tips back so far. Distance only goes so much towards defending against, uh, you know, Bryson proofing a golf course. You got to grow the rough up. That's what they've done. They've narrowed down the fairways, and that's going to be the defense, along with some, you know, tight pin positions. 
Tell me what the changes in the course because it's playing as a par 70. Why? Uh, well, the ninth hole, which for you and I and any other regular Joe Schmo or Jane out there who plays it, that normally plays as a par five. They've turned that into a par four. It's going to be playing about 515 yards straight away, normally a par five, but now a par four. And the 12th hole, which ordinarily plays as a par five, has also been reduced to a par four. That's another way of sort of defending against the ridiculously red numbers that they hope not to see. You know, you understand that a PGA Championship, the numbers are going to get a little lower than they are at a U.S. Open, but they're hoping for, you know, that it's not going to become, you know, 28 under in the desert and Palm Springs kind of tournament. Favorite hole at Harding Park since the three of us have played it so much. We'll start, we'll start with you, Scott, at the bottom. Uh, I'm not giving you any time to think about this, but you've played it enough. Is there one that, that just, you're like, that, that's my hole there? It's just, it's got to be 18 um, just because you, you, you know, you've, it's such a, it's such a different hole. Uh, If you play it from those back tees, you get, you've got some carry, Uh, you got to carry not only a ravine, but uh, really to give yourself the best angle into that green, you've got to carry that cypress tree, don't you? So it's, uh, and then on top of that, you've got a, you've got a, a fairway bunker out there on the right, and you've got that view of the clubhouse playing to an uphill green from the middle of that fairway. And you've got the the lake there along your left. I think it's, it's the one that sort of, I, <laughs> I find myself taking pictures of the most whenever I play there. And I watched the head pro there do a video recently, Josh, and they've moved the tees back even further than normal oh, wow. on 18 for the tournament. So, I mean, you're tucked against that back fence is what it looks like to me right at the entry. Yeah, and from what I've seen the pros out there playing in the past, the President's Cup and the Amex events that they've had out there, you know, you pull you pull it back, but they can still cut that corner. They're they're taking lines that we just don't take, you know, and yeah, they're gonna yeah. they're gonna cut that hole down to size. They'll be hitting, you know, I think on after good drives, seven and eight irons into a hole that for the rest of us were flaring a drive out there two twenty and then hoping to feather a you know a, a three or four iron in. It's just gonna play so differently for these guys. Yeah, I think but yeah, I'm with Scott. I mean, said- it's. I think what the pro said was the carry over the lake from where those, that tee is going to be is 280 just to carry the water. So in that marine layer. Wow. Yeah. So, so Jim Furyk's not going to be cutting the corner, but most of these guys will be, they'll be taking an aggressive line. You kind of have to, as you bail out to the right there, the rough comes up pretty quickly. There's some bunkers. That's not where you want to be playing for. These guys are going to be trying to cut off that corner. Do you have a favorite this week? I mean, every week people can check you out on Golf Magazine or just about every week, right, with, with your expert pick. Um, yeah. I know everyone's talking about the the big bombers this week, but is there one that you're saying uh, this guy's due or this course fits him um, really well this week? Well, I'll say I, I had Brendan Todd this past week, and he was a good bet for about 63 yeah. holes until he collapsed down the stretch. This week, you know, it's it's hard to ignore Brooks. He's rounding into Brooks Kepka's rounding into shape. He always kind of his game seems to peak in times for the majors. This is a course that you would think would set up for him. He can kind of bomb and gouge it around. It's not overly complicated. Not a lot of shaping the ball here and there. Um, I took Z- Xander Shoffley, uh, but I've been sort of on Xander Shoffley forever. He's one of those guys who's just always in it. Mm-hmm. Has not seemed to be able to push it over the edge for the big ones. He's been in it, he's been in the final groups and majors before. I keep expecting him to break through. This season's been a little weird for him so far. I mean, he's been in a lot of events, but they've been late surges. You know, he's had a couple glitches early on. If he can avoid some of those big numbers he's posted in the recent tournaments this season so far, I, I like him. I mean, he's got such a steady game, and uh, I see no reason why it's not his time. 
It's he's a California kid too, isn't he? Yeah, he's from San Diego, you know, San Diego. and a little bit of a different climate. But in San sure. Diego, you get that June gloom, that marine layer. He's used to playing in heavy coastal air. Um, I think there are a lot of things going for him. Plus, he's coming off a good final round uh, this past week. So he's got some good vibes here. And he's due. Scott, who do you like? Uh, I, you know, I've been saying for a while that Patrick Cantley's due. I think he's, you know, sometimes he, it feels like he doesn't show up. But, um, man, you watch that guy swing, it's, it's hard to believe that there's ever a tournament where he's not in the top five. But I think he's... Could be could be his week. He's he's been playing well of late. It seems uh, I don't know how he did this past weekend, but uh, and he's got all the tools. It all it cuts two ways when you got him on the on the camera going down the stretch though. All that fidgeting, the pre shot oh team gosh. drives me insane. <laughs> yeah, God. even Pick even, it up. even the fidget even the fidgeting over the putts. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. drives me insane. Does yeah. does DeChambeau drive you crazy? Because I, I watch him and it's just. It's laborious to me, man. I like, I mean, all his other stuff, but just his pace of play drives me crazy. Yeah. It's rough. And but I kind of like that he's emerging as golf's new villain. You know, we had Patrick yeah. Reed with the yeah. sort of sand gate down at Tiger's event. And, and DeChambeau, he just seems to, you know, like kind of, he says things, you, they're one to the sort of spectrum-y stuff, just seems a little off last what, week. Living, what, living to 140? What, what that's weird? Well, yeah, and you know, going off about how you want a relief from an ant hole, you know, you just like, thinking like, what are you doing, dude? Like, you're just yeah. sort of looking for ways to be annoying. But you got to admire his his intensity, and it's good to have someone like that. He's been the most compelling guy to watch this year, whether you like him or not. He's he's made for riveting TV. Yeah, and it makes you think too about you know getting back to talking about the 18th hole. You know, how's he? Where's his ball going to end up on that hole? You know. Uh, right. That's a whole nother stratosphere. Is he going to be just playing a little flip sand wedge into that green? It's hard to fathom, but the way he, he he's hitting the ball right now, how far he's hitting it, it's, it wouldn't be inconceivable. Something that's going to be interesting to watch this week uh, that I thought of, and uh, Colin, you and I talked about it a little bit when we were just talking about the event last week on the phone, is walking the course last week. You know, There's not going to be any spectators far off the fairway. Normally, the farther you stray from the fairway at these events, you get into trampled down grass. That's not going to be the case here. You know, under the trees, a few paces off the fairway now, it gets really thick, really fast at, at Harding. So when you think of guys like who, who make a living scrambling from the rough, like Tiger and Phil, that's going to be hard going. It's not going to be one of those places you can just knock it anywhere. Well, that's one of the things I've mentioned so many times when we've been at some of these media outings, Josh and Scott, you've been at these as well. They grow up the courses, then they let the media play usually before the tournament, right? Three or four weeks before. And we're playing them in conditions that the pros are going to play in. But like the US Open that was at Olympic Club in 2012, we played that media day, we all shot 115 or whatever. And then the pros play and they're struggling to shoot under par. But I noticed just going there off the fairway, all that rough that was eight inches high that we were playing on the media day was trampled down, which told me that's got to be a little bit easier for the pros than hitting out of eight inch rough, right? What are you saying? You would have shot 112 if the rough had been probably <laughs> at least, instead of 115? At least, I yeah, might have broke 110, that. Josh. I might have. Yeah. No, that's that's the only thing that's been holding you back from the big time, Colin, I can tell. You just need is to play there, a more trampled down rough. Yeah, for sure. Go ahead. Go ahead. Is there a possibility that guys can lose a golf ball in the rough out there because there are no fans? marking those shots 
I don't think so. You know, they're going to have yeah. spotters, but I'll tell you, yeah. like when I played it, I played it right before they shut the course down. I think they shut the course down on July 19th, if I remember. And I must've played it on July 16th. And I played with a couple of friends and, you know, playing without spotters. If you were a foot off the fairway, you were likely to lose a ball. We all played like brightly colored balls. We were worn, bring the neon balls. And we did. Yeah. And even then you had to almost step on it to find it. But I don't think that's going to be an issue come tournament time. I mean, they, it's going to be a sparse, sparse infrastructure out there, but they're going to have guys and gals spotting the, the balls. Yeah. For them, and you'll need them. Yeah. Scott said 18 is his favorite hole. Is that your favorite hole? You know, it's a spectacular hole. I like it. I think my favorite hole, I'm partial to short par fours, and I've always liked the 16th at Harding a lot, the one that you're uh, framed yeah, by. I, so it's my there. favorite too. It's my favorite as well. Yeah. Yeah, I like that you, you know, it used to be, I don't know if you guys remember, but back in the day before they renovated and they pruned all the trees on the right, that used to be the thickest forest of cypress trees over there. If your drive straved over there, the, the ball would like nest in the trees. You could stand there for hours waiting for the wind to blow for your ball to come down. Sometimes it would, sometimes it wouldn't. And if it dropped down, you were just as likely to be blocked. Now you're not really. They've eliminated some of the strategic demand mm-hmm. with the, the by pruning a lot of those trees on the right and removing some of them altogether. But it's still a cool hole, and it's going to be great for the tournament. You know, the, a lot of these guys will be able to drive it, depending on where they place the tee. Always makes for good drama. And when they don't, you got to kind of pick your spot off the fairway, like a lot of good short par fours. It's about you know placement off the tee to set up your second. Well, that's another reason why I like it so much. I've had two eagles in my life, and my second one was on 16. They had the tees up playing 288, and I somehow faded a driver onto the green and then made a 40-footer. But I I like the risk-reward of it. I think, right, if if it comes down to the last few holes of the tournament, it's a hole that guys can make up some ground or potentially lose the tournament right there. Yeah, I mean, good short par fours are always like that. And you're kind of like my editor, Colin. I can tell we, we have an editor we used to joke that the only hole that would appear in Golf Magazine was one that he birdied. And if he eagled it, it would appear on the, it would appear on the cover. Yep. Yeah. So I can tell why you've picked that as your backdrop, too. Yep, you know it. <laughs> well pointed out. <laughs> We're all just yeah. trying to cling to whatever glory we can hold on to as we lurch into middle age here, guys, you know. You all speaking of that, so what did you do to your shoulder? You're not even playing anymore. Yeah, you know, this is a sad uh, middle-age injury. A couple of weeks ago, I was right after I'd played Harding. That was my last round. I was reaching for a book, and I felt something. And then later that day, I was in the backyard with my son, and he spat out a cherry pit. And He's an obnoxious teenager. I picked up the cherry pit, tried to throw it at him, and just blew out my rotator cuff. Brutal. Oh. So, you know, my, my hopes of becoming a closer for the Giants, a setup man for this shortened season, are gone down the drain. And now I don't know when I'll be back on the golf course. It's killing me. Don't Killing even know. me literally and figuratively. Because of a cherry oh. pit? A cherry pit. Yeah. I mean, you know that feeling when you're like throwing a wiffle ball or a tennis ball? You got to warm up slowly with something light. It was like that to, to the 20th degree. Never when you're 53 years old and not warmed up should you ever throw a cherry pit in anger at your teenage son, no matter how obnoxious he's being. Let that be a cautionary tale to you both. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm not throwing cherry pits at my kids, man. I'm not going to yeah. do it. Now I know. I mean, it's, it's pretty much like my, my, a friend of mine was giving me grief. He was like, that is the most middle-aged Jewish injury yeah. I've ever heard of. And I, I stand <laughs> guilty as charged. Sort of something that would happen to Larry David. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, it's a Seinfeld episode. Well, make a good sitcom sure. out of it. I'm just complaining at home. Well, we're not far behind you, so we thank you for the advice. Yeah, sure. <laughs> let 
Let me be a cautionary tale to you both. Well, our, our thing is we played, so I drove out to Utah. I told you about this, Josh. So Scott out there in Park City playing it, played in his member guest. I drove from Yosemite area, Mariposa, 13 hours straight through. Wife wasn't going to let me hop on a plane, of course, and, and hmm. I get it. And um, what do we miss? We missed out on the money by three shots. Three or four. Yeah, I think three on the money, probably five on first. Or no, was I this a was this a handicapped first, event or what was it? Yeah, yeah, handicapped. Handicapped. Yeah. yeah. So Scott shot even par both days. What uh, scramble then best ball? Basically wow. shot even both days, and I shot like low nineties both days. So I I really helped. I really yeah. helped. <laughs> well, that degenerate lifestyle Scott's living up there in the mountains pays off for his golf game. I mean, we all live sort of vicariously through his his days of endless summers. Oh, wait, you have a job. That's we, right. Yeah. Wait, you're, you allegedly get paid for this, too. Sorry yeah, about right. that. Colin, that's edit right. that out in post-production. Yeah, right? yeah, I, I can always edit it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've been, I get asked the question all the time for years, why do you live in Utah? And I just say, I don't know, maybe come check it out sometime. I'm not going uh, to give all, all the secrets away because uh, this place is, is starting to fill up. And that's, uh, that's part of the reason why I moved here was it wasn't full. Uh, it, it was still had the, the type of population that, uh, um, I was looking for and, um, boy, with this whole COVID thing, it, I can already feel, um, the expansion of it. It's going to be real interesting, um, how this place grows or to what extent it grows in the next year or two, I think. People looking to get out into the fresh air. Yep. We got a lot of people moving in from places like the Bay area already. Yeah. Do you guys still have the Olympic Village, Olympic training areas out there, the Skeleton Run and the uh, Oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. Those, and, those uh, things are cool. Really cool and hugely popular still and um, you know, I think further reason why this place should host another Olympics because the infrastructure's here, it's all still top notch and there's no reason why it shouldn't be put to use again for something like that. Have you guys heard the scuttlebutt that the Olympics themselves, the future might be in jeopardy, that the days of the Olympics are fading, that in the era of pandemics and travel and, you know, all sorts of questions about costs to host cities, that there's a lot of criticism of the Olympics proper as an institution. I have not heard that. No, yeah. I, I don't see them going away, but I'll just thought I'd float a conspiracy theory out there to get yeah. out there. And, you know, <laughs> we need one of those per episode. The, yeah. This is the age yeah, of yeah, conspiracy exactly. theories. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, bringing up COVID and everything, and, and I guess lastly about the PGA before we get into your background and everything and, and a bunch of questions Scott wants to fire at you is um, just how strange it's going to be here, right? Um, only a certain amount of media members allowed, kind of like the NBA bubble. Mark Spears told us there was only 20 allowed at, at the NBA's bubble there in Orlando. Here, as you know, you said Golf Magazine's only sending one person, Alan Shipnuck. So it's... Everything about it screams anti-major in a way. Um, yeah. G give me your perspective because you're obviously on the front lines right now. Yeah, I mean, it, we were talking about it during an editorial meeting, how it just felt like this major snuck up on us. Normally at the magazine and for the website, we're just so ramped up, you know, weeks in advance getting prepared. And then suddenly it was sort of like this, oh my God, next week's the PGA. It's happening. And because of all the other coverage that normally happens around a major, you're doing destination coverage, especially in a city like San Francisco, you know, one of the 
most beloved sort of visitors destinations in the world. There's so much else to cover. The other courses, the restaurant scene, the lifestyle, the beauty of the Bay Area. We're not doing any of that coverage. It's all focused on on the venue itself. Um, so there's that. And there's also, you know, the atmosphere itself at the tournament. Roy McElroy earlier this week, he got asked about what it's been like since the comeback. And he said, you know, every every event feels the same to him. Without the fans, you can't gauge the different sort of electricity and atmosphere. And that's going to be interesting, too. You know, the, the question is, are these guys going to be feeling the same amount of pressure? Who will that benefit? Who won't it benefit? Some of these guys feed off of those moments where the crowd is just getting its most intense. Other guys seem to shrink from it. So that'll be something that we'll be looking out for, too. You know, how, the, how will that play out? And will you feel that kind of pressure cooker coming down the stretch that you normally do at a major? It's hard to kind of gauge without the fans ooing and aahing at every shot. Are you bummed that you're not going to be there? You know, most of my coverage is around travel and profiles and kind of quirky destinations. I don't cover the tour as much. Alan's really our tour guy, and it couldn't yeah. be in better hands. And I'm not just saying that because he's just he's been doing it for so long. Sure. Um, I actually prefer doing coverage around events, finding quirky stories off the grounds, finding personalities and, and you know, and destinations to cover than I do to covering the tour. It's not that I'm not interested in the tour, but it's not been my background. And uh, I'm almost as happy to watch an event on TV as I am to watch it live. I couldn't agree more. You know, I've been to several over the years and I've thought, in fact, one, I remember, this sums it up. In 2005, I was at uh, St. Andrews for the British Open and, uh, the Open Championship, I should say. And I recall instead of watching those last several holes or watching any amount of, of, of Tiger's uh, final round, I went out onto the course after they had started the trip, uh, the inward nine, and I walked it from behind them. So they were a couple holes ahead of me, and I just walked it in behind them just because – I was more interested in the architecture of the place rather than being amongst the thousands of people that, you know, were following he and Monty around the course. And you can't see anything in those situations. You are better off watching on TV. And so I just took the opportunity to sort of get to know the course better myself. Uh, I never got I still haven't had a chance to play it, but you know, that, that was more interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, these are, and these are old courses. I mean, obviously, the old course is as old as it gets or almost as old as it gets. And Harding is a golden age design, 1920s. This is not a course, a stadium course. It's not set up for viewing. I mean, they do their best they, that they can with grandstands and all that. But when you're out walking a course like that, you have yeah. sort of one view of a hole at a time. You're not sort of sitting back like you are at TPC Scottsdale on the top of a grandstand looking across the whole expanse of the grounds. It's sort of an effort to, to watch and to follow. Yeah, because the courses aren't designed for those, you know, to move crowds around like that. So you and I, Josh, we met years ago when I was working the PR business and representing some golf courses and unique destinations, as you you might call yes. them earlier, uh, and uh, helped set up a trip for you to Vietnam um, and actually tagged along for a portion of that trip. Um, before we sort of get into uh, to any of that. How did you get into golf riding and, and what was your, your first golf travel story that, that you would sort of register as your first golf travel story? Uh, well, I, I took up golf. I didn't play as a kid. I took up golf in college and I was into it when I got out of college and I got a job out in the Bay Area working for a newspaper. But I was a newspaper reporter doing nothing related to golf. And uh, I had a job writing a sort of man bites dog column for the San Francisco Chronicle, sort of oddball stories in the news. 
And a buddy of mine told me about this high Tibetan Lama who he'd met at the local Muni who was a golf addict. And I called him up, and sure enough, is this guy named the Lama Kunga, who was, you know, a, a disciple of the, the big hitter himself, of the Dalai Lama. He agreed to meet me for a round of golf. It just turned out to, it turned into this comic round where my car broke down driving him out there. And we were sort of, we had to get towed from the side of the road. And then the llama himself turned out to be a bit of a cheat on the golf course. You know, he was sort of the anti-llama in every way. And he was a really, he had a great sense of humor. And so I wrote that account up and it got picked up by um, a magazine that then went under. And then Golf Digest picked it up. And as a result of that, I got connected to people in the golf world and I sort of fell into golf riding. And that was early 2000s. And so it's been almost 20 years since, but totally by it, like the, a lot of the best things in life, totally accidental. But I think, you know, the fact that you're always looking for characters is the key point of that. You know, from the very first time that we had any sort of interaction about your trip to Vietnam, which is where I was living at the time, where all the clients were, I was working with, you wanted entree to characters. It wasn't, I want to talk to the best player or, um, I yeah. want to talk to the GM of this particular course. It was characters. And and by by virtue of sort of getting those types of people, I think that's really what comes through in your writing, what makes your writing. Um, the, the, every piece that I, that I read, I just r- read the one on the, uh, the uh, Muni and uh, uh, Waikiki. And again, you know, interesting people and uh, right. is the common thread there. In, in well, in stuff. I, I do like to find that. And you were helpful. I remember we uh, we ended up playing with the golf champion of Vietnam, right? I mean, I, f- I forget the guy's name. Son was his name? Was yes. His name? Yes, that was it. He had good memory. Son. Yeah. And I mean, I, as I remember, we met at the, the country club outside that 36-hole property outside Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City. And, yeah. you know, he was a good player. But, yeah. you know, th- here yeah. we are in a country where golf was just starting to take root. And that's what I wanted, you know. The, mm-hmm. And he was a guy who helped tell that story of a cor- of a country that, you know, had just a small handful of golfers. He was the national champion, but it's not like he was uh, blitzing into low red numbers. I mean, he, <laughs> no. he, he might shoot par on a good day, but it's not like he was playing a game I was unfamiliar with, right? So, but, yeah, I mean, I think that like anything, you know, my, my, my beef with travel writing in golf, which I have fallen into myself just by out of necessity, is because if you're just describing golf courses or talking to GMs or people on the marketing side or whatever, you're getting pretty much the same story. And after a while, who wants to hear about the long par four dog leg right 460 over a hill and to the bunker? And certainly nobody wants to hear how I played it. That's boring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I try to avoid those kind of travel stories if I can, along with the travel stories that are just sort of a celebration of how lucky I was to play all these exclusive courses or these cool courses. That's the least interesting thing about about travel writing to me. It's golf to me is the most interesting when you find strange, unexpected places where people play it and unexpected characters playing the game, because that's what's the fun of the game is who who you're going to meet on the course, the interactions you're going to have. Most of us aren't, you know, sort of dwelling endlessly on every single shot that we hit. We're, we're, we're thinking about the experiences. No. And when I think back of all those rounds I played in that part of the world, it's, it's uh, the, the first images that come to mind are all the, all the faces, all the people that I've played with um, over there. Um, uh, yeah. And the, and, and the caddies, sorry to interrupt you, but oh, like yeah. the, the, one of the great charms of playing golf in Vietnam is you're playing with, they're usually women caddies and in my experience it always has been, but who are rooting so hard for you. And so they <laughs> giggle nervously when you hit a terrible shot and they giggle happily when you hit a great shot. And I almost felt more pressure trying to hit a good shot for my caddy because she seems so 
sort of genuinely crestfallen when I lost a ball. Oh it, no, you know, just pained. And why? And why is she rooting for you? Uh, why anybody would root for me is a big question. Maybe she's hoping for a more generous tip. I don't know, but it's also that sort of this sense of like, you know, expectation and, and maybe to a certain extent, people, a caddy who's just learning the game doesn't know how hard it is, right? They're thinking, you know, every shot should be perfect. Here's this American guy coming over who supposedly knows how to play the game, but doesn't. The more likely answer though, is they're betting on you. Your, your oh, caddy, right? your oh. caddy is betting on you against her uh, the other caddies within her group. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Those sweet little girls yep, with her caddy, and they were girls. They seem like 16, 17 are gambling yep, already. That's I'm right. shocked. <laughs> um, uh, don't, uh, don't pull the wool over my, you know, back from over my benighted eyes anymore. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm an innocent. I'm an innocent. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, so, uh, Whenever that was, and I can tell you, I remember them when that was because that was when the Red Sox beat, I think, the Rockies in the World Series. Was that 2005 that I met you? It must have been, or was that 2007? I can't uh, remember the year. I think 2007. It was, I think it was been. 2007, yeah, because I, yeah, I so, moved over there in, uh, in the uh, summer of 2007. So, yeah. And then, as you probably know, because you connected with me, some guys over there, I went back last year to Vietnam and the place mm-hmm. was just transformed. I mean, talk yeah. about a booming golf country. I mean, there were courses everywhere, overbuilding, you might say. And I wonder what's going to come of half of those courses yeah i do too not being uh not being part of that or seeing it as frequently obviously as i did um since i've changed uh professions two years ago um i'm not sure uh, i'd be curious to see i think the last time i was there was two years ago so um yeah i can only yeah imagine. i would love to get back when we can travel again vietnam is high on my list it's such a cool country it really is well, i know I, I know scott was going to bring it up too um all the courses you've played all around the world, is, is there one on your bucket list that, that's at the top that you haven't played? You're asking me or Scott? You're asking you. Scott, yeah? I'm asking you, Josh. You're asking me. Yeah. Oh, my bucket list. I would say I have not been to New Zealand. I'd really like to go see Terra Edi, which I hear mm-hmm. is spectacular, a Tom Doak design right along the coast. supposed to be awesome. I'd like to see some of the other older courses there, but just New Zealand in general. I've played a bunch in Australia. I've played in all, all six continents where the game is played, but I've not played in New Zealand, which is just booming with golf. Years ago, oh boy, 20 years ago, I, uh, I hitchhiked around that country and uh, I still remember, I still remember the most of the faces of the people that I hitched rides with. And it was the most stunning landscape, dramatic landscape that I think I've ever uh, been in, um, that South Island um especially so yeah i I didn't even play i didn't even play golf had at that time really had no interest was just uh, in awe of the place itself right and then you have like you know cape kidnappers and cowrie cliffs you have all these really dramatic sites so if you're into golf and you're into beauty i mean it's it seems like you know new zealand is tough to beat but i've not been there personally yet yeah what about Um, you guys where do you where do you most want to play what's your bucket list god don't tell me augusta no don't say augusta (laughs) I don't know where to begin. Every every time I think I've uh, I've seen and, and played so much, somebody will throw a, a name of a course out there, and I'll say, eh, "I haven't played that either." <laughs> so there's yeah, there's, there's a, a lot. lot there's a lot. Um, you know, uh, for me, I guess it would be. Uh, I still haven't played, even though the irony of this, I've spent a lot of time in 
um, the Melbourne area, but have not played any of the Sandbelt courses with the exception of the National, which really doesn't, doesn't, uh, um, isn't in that category. Um, and then I've also been curious of, uh, even though I've also been to Tasmania, uh, this was before Barn Boogle Dunes was uh, was created. I would love to uh, check that out as well. So, so any of the any of the courses along the Sand Belt in Australia and uh, Tasmania as well would probably be top of my list. Yeah, I mean, I think Melbourne is uh, the best golf city in the world in terms of concentration of great courses in a small area. It is just insane. Each one of them better than the next, and Tasmania is amazing. I haven't been back since. Shortly after they opened Lost Farm, the sister course to Barnbogle, but it's just a spectacular place. It's like Cypress Point with wallabies, you know, just uh, bouncing around. It's just wild, gorgeous. Yeah. 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 What about you, Colin? But I mean, these days I feel like, you know, if, if the greens are in decent condition, the pace of play is okay, and I'm playing for $5 with a good friend, I'm happy to play almost anywhere. <laughs> that little nine hole at Karika Park. There you go, you know. Totally happy with that. There it is. I would love right? to get back out there. Yeah. As soon as this shoulder gets better, I'll be, oh, God, I can't even lift it over my my arm. It's, uh, I'm, I'm like my right there. So, Colin, you, you cover sports, right? I mean, you're a longtime veteran. You you blow out your shoulder. Is there ever any return? In baseball, it basically, it's the end of your career. Yeah, right. No, I mean, hey, I've, I've had right shoulder problems for years. I'm scared to get it looked at. So I'm, I'm I don't know if I've got the same thing you have, but it, it constantly bothers me, too. But uh, I just won't yeah. be throwing any uh, cherry pits, so um, it, it'll 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 stay golf ready, you know, as long as I don't do that. How's that? Yeah. How's that left arm throwing motion, Josh? Left arm? Yeah, I'm not exactly ambidextrous. I can get it. I can get it to the home plate, but not with any kind of velocity or movement. And it's all about the late movement, right? It'll be yeah. Fauci-esque if you threw left-handed. Sorry. It'll be Fauci-esque if you threw left-handed. I heard about that. I missed that uh, that opening pitch. I heard it was pretty yeah. tragic. Yeah, it was. <laughs> well, it happened. Um, we got a couple minutes here left, guys. Scott, you have you have one last one for Josh. Well, I just kind of like to know how he see how you've seen um, the uh, tra- golf travel writing change over the years. You know, you say you've been at this fifteen or twenty years, and obviously, with the exception of. Uh, the reduction in outlets, of course, um, which was a big reason why I got into the PR and marketing side of things was, um, you know, there was, there was, there was a fast uh, drop off in the amount of outlets that were out there for it. And uh, uh, I just decided to get out then, which was what, 14 years ago. So how have you seen it change with the exception of that? What, and how do you, where do you see it going? Um, I mean, I, it, it kind of mirrors what we see across the media, with, which is less of an investment by outlets in sort of long-form travel writing, less of an investment in sending people far afield to come back with a, an extensive read, a, a narrative to people to sit down and read. A lot of the travel coverage these days is like other coverage in the media. It's social media, it's clicks, it's Instagram, Instagram stories. Um, so the idea of finding those characters and kind of telling a yarn is there's less of a premium on that. I think there are still some outlets that want to do it and it's still my interest, but the opportunities for that are fewer and farther between. And now with COVID, we're all just scrambling, trying to tell stories from afar, Yeah, which is yeah. hard. Yeah. yeah. Well, hey, Josh, you know, we're, we're running short of time here. Zoom's going to cut us off. Uh, we're we're okay. not in premium with Zoom, so... 
Um, hey man, I really you don't even have the premium membership, this. man. This is like this is this is like no. you know uh, garage band basement uh, basement recordings. I like it. Yeah, yeah. You know, we we try to keep this under forty minutes. We don't have interest in talking to you for any longer than that. Honestly, well, I'd wonder and I'd wonder and worry about you if you did. <laughs> uh, social media wise, where can people find you? At Twitter, Josh sends hashtag Josh sends. I've I've tweeted three or four times in the past couple of years, so you can you can follow those pretty easily. There you go. Every time I dive in there, I kind of like have take a step back from the vitriol because <laughs> I want to be cheeky. I want to say something playful, but man, is that a loaded fraught terrain? No doubt. But hey, there's a lot you, of anger out there. Right. But you're doing video stuff now. You're not just a writer. All this stuff for Golf Magazine. You're you're multimedia journalist now. You've come I'm into my territory. Trying to adapt. Just trying to stay employed like everybody. That's right. That's right. Well, we're from the tips. You can find us on Twitter at capital F T T I P S Podcast. That's F T Tips Podcast. Same on Instagram and on Facebook at From the Tips Podcast. And also you can watch this on YouTube. Hopefully tomorrow I'll get it up, so it'll be ready to go. But this was episode two from the tips with our man Josh Sens, Golf Magazine. Josh, thanks again for joining us, and hey, have a good PGA Championship week from the comfort of your own home. I'll be icing my shoulder and rooting for Zonder Shoffley who I've got in the office pool. <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. That's a wrap. All right, guys. All right, see you, Scott. You too. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.